Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Major Chris Parker, and this podcast topic is Consolidating Gains. With me today is Colonel Rich Creed, Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, or CAD, and Colonel Shane Morgan and Bob Molinari of the Mission Command Training Program, or MCTP. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks to, for, for having us here, Chris. Absolutely, thanks. So today we're discussing an update to the Army's strategic roles and operational framework that debuted in the 2017 version of Field Manual 3.0, or FM 3.0, and that's Consolidate Gains. So I guess, Colonel Creed, sir, if we could start with kind of the basics. So what do we mean when we say consolidate gains? Well, Chris, let me uh, set the stage for the discussion. So as we were reworking uh, FM 3.0 in 2016 and 2017, you know, the Army had some strategic roles uh, that it had talked about, but essentially they were part of, uh, you know, a short elevator speech, prevent, shape, win. And so prevent, shape, win um, was not the basis uh, for us to, to, to build a, a doctrinal framework. So we, we tried to expand that out uh, based on lessons learned uh, from the Army over the last 20 years or so, um, and then hang some intellectual muscle onto that, that very basic framework. Um, and so when we talked about uh, shaping the security environment, preventing conflict, uh, prevailing in large-scale combat operations, uh, and then consolidate gains. It was a recognition that um, it's okay to, to generate conventional deterrence and we don't have to fight. That's, that's the ideal. If there's a crisis and we react to it fast enough and there's no fight, uh, then that's, that's good. Uh, but if we have to fight, uh, we, we want to fight in such a way that we prevail. But is the fight itself the thing that's going to end the war? Uh, or a conflict in such a way that allows us to achieve our national objectives. And, and so because we're a thinking organization uh, and the Army, you know, tries to learn from prior mistakes or shortcomings, uh, we understood that consolidate gains was a big deal. Part of the reason why, you know, we didn't invent that term out of, out of whole cloth, um, the Army operating concept that was published in 2014 by TRADOC that was going to inform the future concept that became multi-domain operations and multi-domain battle uh, mentioned the, the idea of consolidating gains by Army forces 10 or 12 times in, in a relatively short document. Uh, and its emphasis on the importance of la- land forces uh, and their you know, centrality, if that's a word, uh, to those consolidating gains to achieve political objectives was one of the reasons why we put it in the book. So I, 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 I think I need to, or I want to bring it up, how much of this, sir, is based on kind of the shortcomings of OIF? You know, we, we raced to Baghdad, we, we secured it, and then we kind of battened the hatches and hunkered down. Was this, a, a, I mean, a, a, obviously a painful or a, a lesson learned from the Army from this that we, we wanted to hit it and fix this? I think in a large part, that, that's a true statement, um, and it was an understanding that, okay, we want to do some analysis. So think about the, the wars uh, or conflicts in our history that were wins uh, and the ones that were ties or, or not wins um, that had indecisive results, right? Um, and so <laughs> Iraq was fresh in our minds, and, and one of the ironies of, uh, I guess, the whole uh, process as we were working on the draft 
and consolidate gains became a, a discussion point. You know, we had the, the responsibility to float the idea out with the Army senior leadership. So while here at the Combined Arms Center there was general agreement, within TRADOC there was general agreement, um, we kind of had to get buy-in from some other folks. And so an interesting aside is we were working on 3.0, and we, we would brief uh, the various stages of the draft. We would use the, the Army Strategic Education Program for general officers. Uh, Ten or 15 of them would come a quarter out here, and they had senior mentors who were with them, so retired four stars, um, who were the commanders early on, uh, guys like General McKernan, uh, in uh, OIF or OEF. And so um, we're floating that idea out there, and, and you know it could get a little contentious in the room when you're the colonel sitting there with a whole bunch of general officers, and you're trying to explain why consolidate gains is important and, and doctrine. Um, and until we were clear about what it is we were trying to do, we weren't trying to poke anybody in the eye. We are trying to make sure that we don't repeat any mistakes and to equip general officers with, with doctrinal references that will enable to make a, a strategic case uh, to our civilian leadership for the resources necessary to win a campaign uh, and achieve the, the political goals associated with that campaign. And so uh, General McKiernan in particular, uh, as we iterated this back and forth, became one of our big champions uh, for that, as have some of the other senior mentors. And, and intuitively, uh, most of the senior leaders understood why this was an important idea. And, and we talk about it uh, in the doctrine specifically. So we say, you know, the U.S. Army's consolidated gains with various degrees of success throughout its history. Uh, we did it during the Indian Wars, and we did it in the Civil War, uh, after the Civil War during Reconstruction. Uh, we did it after the Spanish-American War in the Philippines during World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Haiti, Iraq, and Afghanistan. But the difference was various levels of success and the cost associated with that. Um, so we found that if we would address the issue up front and plainly and make it central to how we design campaigns and operations uh, to achieve those political uh, end states that, that we seek, uh, then we would have the tools necessary maybe not to repeat some of the mistakes that, that we have made. So now you mentioned the uh, the history and the campaigns the Army has, has had in its past where it has consolidated gains to varying degrees of success. Now, consolidating gains is obviously not a new concept. How was this treated doctrinally in the past, and what sources did you, sir, draw on when you were build, putting this back into doctrine? So interestingly enough, the only thing in doctrine that ever really talked about, used the word consolidate, was consolidating on the objective, consolidating and reorganizing on the objective. Uh, and there's a relationship. I mean, it's the same uh, mental construct and done for the same purposes in many ways, right? It's uh, at the lowest tactical level when you consolidate and reorganize on the objective, what are you doing? Well, you're setting the conditions to continue the operation. Uh, if the operation has come to an end, then you're setting the conditions for a transition, right, to the next thing. Well, if you, if you uh, scale that up and extrapolate it out, um, it's got different meanings when you get you know, from a platoon up to a division, to a corps, to a theater army, to a joint force uh, command that's conducting a, a campaign. But as you move up in those echelons, the things that you're consolidating are a little bit different. And ultimately, you're setting um, the security conditions for a favorable peace. And, and so while these things were understood at the lowest tactical level uh, as part of a transition, 
we'd kind of lost the ball on from a policy side and, and policy is informed by you know your doctrine in some ways um, but from understanding that if you have this 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 grand objective uh, at the end of a military campaign then you've got to set the conditions for those for those political settlements to be enduring and setting the security conditions on the ground is the army's responsibility so that's how we kind of looked uh, at that yes sir and I, I appreciate that <clears throat> that big picture kind of walking it well walking it from the tactical up um, makes a lot of sense I'd like to drop down to kind of the operational level now though sir and if if we could when we when we added consolidate gains it, to our doctrine it became part of our operational framework our geographic operational framework because we have the deep the close the support and now the consolidation area and I'd like to start with who typically establishes consolidation areas and who do they assign these areas to, generally speaking? Yeah, so what the doctrine says is that uh, the first echelon that establishes a consolidation area is a division, um, and that typically would need the equivalent of a brigade combat team uh, to, to uh, use that as its area of operations. In other words, it becomes an area of operations for a brigade combat team. Uh, and so the and then you know if you move it up to a core then it becomes a division or, or some combination of brigades we say in the doctrine uh, a core implies a employs a division what we're really talking about though is this is primarily in an offensive framework okay um, because the challenge becomes uh, as you're moving forward uh, you're seizing objectives you're defeating enemies and you're continuing to move the amount of area that an echelon is responsible for continues to grow and so you get stretched out so you it becomes about risk um, where do i want to uh, assume risk in terms of consolidating gains and, and dealing with securing population centers urban centers uh, critical terrain and accounting for all those enemy forces well, you know enemy forces don't just disappear uh, when they're defeated, you know, you don't necessarily get all of them. So you've got to account for those orders of battle. So you're going to bypass enemy forces. There's going to be enemy forces who are off to your flanks or end up behind you uh, because your axis of advance doesn't include them. Uh, and particularly when you're conducting operations that are not contiguous. I've got an axis advance uh, for one brigade or two brigades in, in, in one part of a division AO and, and another two brigades in a different part of a division AO because terrain forces me that way uh, or my correlational forces forces me that way. Uh, but in any event, somebody's got to be responsible for policing up and, and securing uh, those enemy forces. The other bit of this is, and this gets back to the lessons learned uh, part of it, is that if you give the enemy enough time, they can reorganize what capabilities are remaining for them to wage a different kind of conflict and protract the war. So we defeat the Iraqi army and the Republican Guard and so forth in 2003, but we never captured all of them. We just basically said, you know, the war's over, go home. Uh, and I'm oversimplifying it, but we didn't have enough forces to occupy the whole country, so folks just basically walked home. But th that gave uh, bad actors the opportunity and the time and the sanctuary um, to reconstitute a protracted resistance that went on for, you know, the first case for eight, eight years or so. So, sir, when you, you talked about the echelons and, and how as we conduct the offense, obviously AOs grow. And, and so my question becomes is what is the best way that you've seen for units to assign a consolidation area? Is it 
that BCT that's in the that's doing the close fight, do they achieve their objectives and then transition to consolidate gains, or do they continue, generally speaking, in that offensive and another follow and support unit just arrives and, and assumes a consolidation area? What, and, and MCTP, you gentlemen may have some good insight here as well as to what's the best practice for that. Yeah, I think they've seen the most uh, practical applications in, in simulation. I will tell you, the doctrine gives you the option, right? It may make sense if a, if a brigade combat team or two in a division area of operations is, is relatively decisively engaged, but winning the fight in, say, an urban area uh, or some type of other dense or, or close terrain, um, to leave them in that fight to finish the fight, uh, whereas the rest of the force moves on. So that becomes a consolidation area uh, intellectually. It doesn't matter to the brigade that you call it a consolidation area, what it means for the division, because they're doing the same tasks. They're executing decisive action. They're attacking, they're defending, they're doing stability operations. Um, and those conditions change over time. So leave them in contact and let them finish that and give them additional capabilities where civil affairs or engineering or MPs uh, to, to finish that particular part of the operation. In other cases, it may make sense to say, hey, I'm going to bypass this for now. Everybody else is going to keep going, and the following support force is going to come up and assume that mission through a relief uh, in place or a forward passage of lines. But I'll let, leave it to these guys to, to talk about how uh, they see it in practice. Yeah, thanks. thanks, Rich. And, uh, so, so for the Mission Command Training Program, you know, who, who are we? Why do we exist? We, we, we exist to support the operating force. And, and you know, what is our means of enabling the training of the operating force at you know, tactical division, tactical core, and functional and multifunctional brigades fighting in large-scale combat operations? And if there's a footstop, we've been focused on LISCO, large-scale combat operations in warfighter exercises for about four years now, and, and, and I would, and, and I'm joined today by, by Colonel Bob Molinari, so I have the privilege of commanding the organization, but, but Bob's really our senior OC uh, and our senior chief operations group who, who's out and in interacting with the divisions and the corps on warfighter exercises. And, and, and where we're fortunate in terms of our observations, so one could say that the CTCs are the engine that drive change, but, but really it's our connection with the uh, with the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate and, and the Center for Army Lessons Learned. And I'll talk about that in a second. But so specific to your question on, on the consolidation area and best practices, I, I, I will submit that there hasn't been another topic um, or another challenge uh, for divisions and corps um, more so uh, that has evolved over time than, than the consolidation area, but peeling it back, it's the mission command or the command and control uh, in the support area. And uh, so in terms of a best practice uh, for our organization for combat, for a, for a large-scale combat operations warfighter exercise, uh, the division is balanced. It's got a striker brigade combat team. It's got a light infantry brigade combat team. It's got an armor brigade combat team. And then it has, the division has its organic Devardi Sustainment Brigade and Combat Aviation Brigade. But, but what else is added that, that, is, that enables mission command, command and control um, in, in, the, in the rear area? And that's the Maneuver Enhancement Brigade. And, uh, and then, then when we talk about the command and control, relatively new term, at, le at least to me, Rich, correct me if it's been around for years and years, but the, the support area command post. And, and so to, to your specific question, 
what we've seen as a best practice is the support area command post structure is provided by the Maneuver Enhancement Brigade's headquarters. And that enables other brigades that operate and sustain themselves from the rear so that the division commander can be unburdened, focused on the deep fight and, and the close fight. But is the DCGS, uh, Deputy Commanding General for Support in a Division, if he, he or she postures themselves there, we have seen um, that that's kind of the, the sweet spot and the recipe for success because then he becomes, um, he's the officer in charge in the rear. Um, but, but I will share one more thing in terms of, you know, the SACP, we can talk about it more and more. It, it has to be resourced. Uh, and it has to be resourced with command and control systems, mission command systems, army battle command systems, whatever you want to call them. But so that you can clear ground, you can clear air, and you can synchronize fires with maneuver because you have a battle space owner, call it the TCF or the brigade combat team, that's got the whole consolidation area. But inside the support area, those bypassed units that we didn't address, internally displaced personnel, uh, it, that if, if the enemy can and does in warfighters get into our rear, uh, he, he can, that's uh, a clear pathway to, to success, to him achieving his objectives. But, but I'll pause there. Best practice, SACP, Maneuver Enhancement Brigade that trains with the active component division. And that's the other component here is, is that uh, we don't have any Maneuver Enhancement Brigades in, in Compo 1. So the sweet spot is if they're able to train with a, with a division uh, uh, during CPX 1, 2, and 3, get left of Stardex, integrated systems, processes, products. Um, th th that has become what we've seen and observed as, uh, as a best practice. I'll, I'll pause there and, and pass it over to, uh, to Bob Molinari. So, uh, Rich and Shane, thanks for, thanks for letting me be here. Really, um, my, my experience with the conversation is focused on this last year as, uh, as the Chief of Operations Group Alpha, uh, and the commander hit it on the nose. The, the question is, how do we train consolidation areas in our warfighter exercises? Because the warfighters, um, for those who might not be experienced with them, are, are nine-day sprints, absolutely tactical. Uh, where we take a lot of uh, volume or information and push it through a very small pipe and we focus on information flow, systems, processes, duties and responsibilities of individuals, it really, really overwhelms division and core staffs and the functional multifunctional brigades. Deliberately. Absolutely. You, you've got to because we, we, we connect with them early and we try and coach them for the home station command post exercises just like they do for National Training Center, JRTC, JMRC. Uh, that this is coming. And the consolidation area conversation is, is a big part of that. Uh, and Colonel Morgan hit it on the nose with, uh, with the struggle and best practices they have. Because in that nine-day sprint, the division or the corps commander has a lot of things that he or she is focused on. Uh, a lot of it ends up being intelligence and fire, certainly maneuver, obviously C4I. Certainly sustainment and protection is a big part. But an understanding of, of what how much attention from the command group needs to be paid to the consolidation area because as you said they're still trying to maintain tempo uh, from a position of advantage in a very tactical fight that has a very short duration with a lot of things changing in a thinking world-class op four that's that's not being a, a fair competitor um, the consolidation area as colonel morgan said it's really a struggle with what resources are back there and and as he mentioned uh, the Maneuver Enhancement Brigades, because they're in Compo 2 and Compo 3, National Guard Reserve component, f 
there's maybe once out of five warfighters that will see a maneuver enhancement brigade as a training audience. What that means is they're not out in the field in a command post in a tactical posture, and they're not able to be part of that sustainment area command post to support the division commander for support. And so because of that, uh, the divisions and the corps, they have to come up with unique ways of taking portions of the corps and division staff which aren't resourced for it and are typically under strength and personnel to conduct that, uh, that sustainment area command post um, C2. Uh, and our senior mentors coach them on, our retired general officers that are integral to the mission command training program, coach our general officers on consideration for who, it's always the DCGS, but what staff can you pull out of your main or your assault CP in order to integrate the efforts of both the MEB, that's a response cell, so it's working out of the mission training complex, it's not in the field, the sustainment brigade, and then typically the brigade, as was mentioned, that's doing the larger scale consolidation area while the MEB is mostly limited to the sustainment area. And in a tactical fight, it's, they're really focused on MSR, ASR security, to some extent detainee operations, um, but they're really focused on, on level three threats or platoon level mechanized threats that have either been bypassed or suddenly coming from the flanks that suddenly impact the division or core operational reach. Ultimately, the consolidation area, uh, as Colonel Morgan mentioned, it comes down to a conversation on rear boundaries. Yeah. When, when will the core allow the division to move its rear boundaries in order for the division that wants to move closer to its final objective to decrease the security of those MSRs and ASRs because the MEB is already overstretched and they, they, they lose combat power as they continue their offensive the brigade combat team, typically the IBCT that they leave in the rear, they need forward. Well, the Corps has the same concern, but the Corps also doesn't have a MEB either. So it, it, the way we train, very tactical. Uh, I would love to get into a conversation about how we consider it at the operational strategic level, but at the tactical level, it's, it's a struggle for resources and priorities. It ultimately comes down to commander's priorities. So there was something, Colonel Morgan, that you said, I think that I just want to clarify it, hit again. It sounds like the sweet spot for this is the SACP, or the Support Area Command Post, and the MEB working together. And that's, I assume that's because the MEB inherently doesn't have the ability to control airspace and whatnot. Uh, and that, is that, am I, am I wrong or is that? I mean, the Maneuver Enhancement Brigade uh, consists of engineers, MPs, and chemical, right? Am I forgetting anybody? And, and it's a command post that, but they, it doesn't come with AMDUS. It doesn't come with TAIS. They don't come with AFATADs. And, and, and you'll find those who plug into it, the sustainment brigade, for example, they really don't have those systems either. Um, so it's got to come, it's zero sum and it has to come from somewhere. The brigade combat team has those systems. That's the TCF you know, securing the, uh, the consolidation area. But, but that's really what it comes for. I mean, the enemy, the world-class op force trying to get into our rear. And, and, and when he does with a you know, level three threat, um, we, we will sense something and we won't be able to shoot something because we're numb, because we don't have the systems, processes, equipment, materiel uh, in place. Now, it's, this is a known thing. This, is, this isn't just our observations. When I, when, I, when I mentioned that, I don't think, the only topic that maybe rivals it in terms of observations, TTPs, call manuals, military review articles might be the JAGIC, but the DCGSs of the division, I think started back with uh, then General Fenzel with the uh, with the 82nd, wrote, wrote an article on on the support area command post in this construct and talked about the limitations, um, both for materiel, but a way as we get lighter, 
with expando vans and how we operate. But it, it really is, it's not the leadership. I think the, the leadership, once they're integrated to get to know each other, hopefully go through a CPX3 together. But, but it's, do they have the, the, the systems and, and, and do they have sets and wraps? Because, you know, it's tough enough to clear fires from the D main or, or on the COIC or with the JAGIC. And, and yet same battle space owner, command and control node uh, is, has to do those things as well. You know, that kind of probably causes, maybe we need to jump back a second and discuss what's different in divisions now than, than maybe 30 years ago, right? So when we were commissioned, uh, the three old guys here, not you. Uh, when we were commissioned, divisions had a main command post, they had a tactical command post, they had a rear command post, and they were organized and equipped to take care of you know, the close, deep, and rear areas. Um, the Army deliberately walked away from the rear area construct. Now, we had support areas back then as well, but they were graphic control measures inside that rear area that is where you put your sustainment uh, and your maneuver support stuff. All the areas outside of those little circles uh, with the routes that go in and out of them was called your rear area. But the rear command post for a division or a corps was responsible for that entirety of physical space and all of the units that were operating inside it. Um, we did away with rear command posts probably 15 years ago when they reorganized the divisions and we went to a modular construct. But we weren't looking, we didn't expect or anticipate uh, that we were going to fight those kinds of wars against peer threats that we would call constitute large-scale ground combat operations now. Uh, and if we did, we just figured we would adapt. But that, that loss of, of capacity and capability uh, in those command post nodes forced the Army, and I think General Abrams at Forcecom took the lead on this uh, by directing that all the divisions will constitute support area command posts mm -hmm. to uh, fulfill that role as we shifted back to focus on large-scale ground combat operations during the MCTP warfighter exercises. The reason why it's called a support area command post is confuses everybody because it, am I talking about the support area? What am I talking about? The, the support area command post from the doctrinal perspective is supposed to be responsible for the entirety of the area between the close area and whatever echelon's rear boundary. So mm -hmm. it's the division or the core rear boundary, not just the support area. The support area is, is the area of operations for the MEB or whatever organization you assign responsibility uh, for facilitating operations in the support area. Um, and so, you know, this language, once again, it becomes our own worst enemy because the deep, close rear construct was viewed as linear uh, and therefore it was out, outdated or, or somehow industrial age. Uh, and that's fine if you've got a certain model of conflict like the ones we were doing for a long time where everything we did was essentially uh, operations based on a radius. I've got a central point that's a fob and everything goes out in a radius. Uh, in my assigned area of operations. It's not about a continuous movement of the entire formation from one area to the next. Uh, and so when you do that, you're oriented in a certain direction and everything behind you is still your rear. Mm -hmm. So the good news is that as we go forward here over the next year, uh, we're gonna, I think, provide some, some additional clarity that will set people free from trying to dance around this idea, all right, I got the consolidation, or I got the supporter. We're gonna talk about rear areas again. Uh, and consolidating gains occurs in the rear area. And the support area is a subset uh, of the rear area, but that will free divisions to talk about 
potentially rear command posts again. Um, and then when you talk about a rear command post, it, it becomes intuitively obvious that I'm concerned about more than just the support area, right? Well, thanks for clearing that up, sir. I think I think the uh, the rear area, the resurrection of the rear area is, is interesting. I think it's probably a very good commonsensical approach. But Colonel Morgan, I, I want to touch real briefly on, uh, you mentioned the, the MEB again and the engineers and MPs and the other enablers that are inside the MEB. Are there other enablers aside from those that, that you've seen that are typically helpful in the consolidation of gains? Um, other, other than just what comes in the MEB? Well, I think the MEB, again, provides the structure for the command and control that to which the, if the DCGS, or I mean, this is a TTP, um, and, and has a staff, but if you look at others, I, I think everybody's got a, got a piece in this. Uh, if you look at, you know, who's the battle space owner and you dominate everything and own everything in that battle space, could be a brigade combat team, although that's the decision that the commander has to make. We, we give the... You know, for our warfighter exercises, we organize for combat. I described it earlier, but but then it's the commander's decision to you know task organize as as he sees she sees fit. So um, I, you know, we do have MPs, uh, MP brigades that participate in warfighter exercises. You know, we do have engineer brigades. We have functional MI brigades that, that come in. Um, it, it doesn't. It's not necessarily a matter of who is focused specifically is focused on consolidating gains. It just has to be somebody with the rose pinned on them, and they understand that you know that's part of their you know running estimate. That's part of their assessments. That's part of you know we're going to circle back. We made these assumptions, and these assumptions still valid. Um, I, I, I think uh, is how I would best describe it. But Bob, over to you. So the MEBs are tailorable. Uh, the MEBs uh, at home station are, are not one size fits all. Um, what Colonel Morgan said straight on, we tailor them for a warfighter with an MP battalion, engineer battalion, Seabird battalion. Um, for the training, the more signal capability, because they all have signal capability, allows them to generate greater C2, at least from a C4I construct. Um, and of course, we talked about the security forces assigned to it. That one MP battalion is limited in either MSR, ASR security, and to what degree of detainee operations it can handle within the, uh, within the, uh, the warfighter. Um, the real question is the, the lash up between the MEB assigned and because and, the SACP is a C2 structure. It should have uh, systems and processes that allow it to command and control everything coming in and out of a fixed area. So the sustainment area and the consolidation area because you're going to have a lot of other non-divisional assets in there in a warfighter. The core will have artillery, aviation, sustainment assets coming in and out that might run into security concerns that need to dial one or come up on some net to dial into the SACP in order to gain assistance. Um, the, the assets, for the question you had, it's really tying the SACP into not just the MEB and the Sustainment Brigade and that BCT that's security, but how can the CAB assist in a warfighter with aviators that are coming back from operations in the close area to clear NAIs in the rear? It's something it takes a while to morph into because so much of the focus for, again, a nine-day sprint in a warfighter is on taking ground and moving forward. Just that synchronization is really overwhelming for a new team of leaders and professionals. It just, it's just a lot to do. But no one's thinking, how do we take, how do we squeeze out every asset we have in the rear for security or, or contingency preparation so that when bypass forces or a flank attack comes out, or sometimes we'll even interject an air assault of op four forces coming in that they're able to address it so it's not asking for more it's integration of what you have 
integration between the division and the core, integration of everything within the division, because typically the cab is kind of really focused forward and they're not clearing NAIs. And the, the Devardi, which is typically co-located with the command post forward, has a lot of elements that are back there that are waiting to move forward that can also be used for security. So it's, it's really maximizing what you have. Oh, I think that makes sense, right? But you, you touch on an interesting point, and I, I'm curious, do we do you see this idea of consolidating gains at all at odds with this the drive for momentum and seizing the objective? And if so, how do you – I mean, you, you kind of mentioned how units can, can strike a balance with, um, you know, trying to, to do both. But what are some of the best practices for, for bridging that gap between the need to, to have momentum initiative and seize the objective and then also consolidate gains at the same time? So it comes down to a balance based on priorities. Um, the CGs I've had the, the, the honor to work with over the past year have all emphasized the concepts of tempo and presenting multiple dilemmas to the enemy because it's the only way to gain a position of advantage in a Korean threat against an enemy that has been in a deliberate defense for 60 years or in a Baltic scenario where it's a peer near peer competitor and it's got a fantastic integrated air defense capability. Tempo and multiple dilemmas and also the incorporation of deception is the only way to do it. But you've got to balance those very complex operation with your rear, mm -hmm. with, what, with consolidating gains and not forgetting that you, in order to maintain up tempo, you have to maintain operational reach, which translates to how much MSR, ASR do you have to secure to bring class three, five forward and to move your casualties backwards. And that, that balance, that priority typically tilts mm -hmm. to the tempo and tilts away from the operational reach until we get into about day five, day six, day seven, when the division is really starting to feel the impact of securing so many MSRs, ASRs. And that's when we have a conversation about boundaries mm -hmm. and asking the core, hey, we'd like to move our rear boundary. And the core saying, whoa, well, I, uh, so we've got stuff going on here in the core consolidation area, and it's fairly lethal in nature. We're not ready to do that. It's a great conversation between Echelon to talk about that balance versus priorities. I would throw another thing out there. While we were thinking about this and whiteboarding it as we were trying to figure out the doctrine, it really comes down to when, when mm -hmm. and where you're going to accept risk. So, you know, outside of an ex exercise construct where the focus is training very specific skill sets for very specific echelons and you work with the most lethal backwards, right? Um, from the doctoral perspective, we were trying to think through okay, there's different scenarios where you've got to accept risk differently. So uh, using historical examples, you know, the U.S. Army in Europe in the Second World War, um, we consolidated gains as we went along on a broad front, right? And everybody that's seen the movie The Bridge Too Far always, you know, here's the arguments between Montgomery and, and Eisenhower and, and Bradley and Patton about, hey, we're going to do the deep, fast thrust uh, to, to achieve some sort of immediate r results. Uh, versus this broad front that's creating multiple uh, dilemmas and doesn't allow the enemy to concentrate against one effort, but it also allows you to consolidate gains and, and, and reestablish, say, the French government and the Dutch government and all those things as your Belgian government as you're going along. And so, out of necessity, you do bypass things. So there were channel ports that didn't surrender till you know April of 1945, but you bypass them, you seal them off, and you continue. Uh, to consolidate gains as you went. You can contrast that uh, to the Pacific campaign where you bypass large numbers of forces, 
But the risk of those forces you bypassed doing anything to you when there was no naval or air support was essentially zero. So you could consolidate gains on all those bypass Japanese forces after they surrender, essentially, right? Um, so in a modern context, the tension would be, if I've only been allocated enough forces, I think 2003, to cause the fall, fall of the government and my political imperative first, you know, in the near term is to defeat them, um, and I'm gonna make assumptions about everything else turning out wonderfully, then I'm gonna accept risk up front. I'm gonna use a smaller number of forces. I'm gonna move very fast. I'm gonna achieve tactical victory that has some strategic results. But then I have to go back and I have to consolidate gains. Uh, and so in some cases, and there were actually examples in the march to Baghdad of forces moving back to re-secure uh, lines of communication along ASRs and MSRs, right? Uh, I think the brigade from the 82nd and 101st both did that, although my history might be off. But the bottom line is, do I, do I accept risk to tempo by taking a very deliberate approach, which may give the enemy some advantages, uh, or do I accept the risk by moving fast and then going back to consolidate gains afterwards? And that's what we were wrestling with, and I just don't know, like you said, in a nine-day exercise, unless the exercise is designed to address that, uh, how you get after it. The, uh, the tempo piece, it's, and it's synchronized, right? If you look at it, this, this is the, we gotta remember, large-scale combat operations, this is a tactical core that's commanding, controlling subordinate tactical divisions. And in our new scenario that we're, you know, applying or rolling out here next month, um, it's a tactical core with four subordinate tactical divisions. And, and they're in the attack, they're in the offense. So it's not just tempo of your division, but how is that relative to your adjacent units? And that's what we see, you know, with the commander-to-commander -commander dialogue um, nightly uh, between the core commander and his division commanders. The, the other thing that we see that, that is very helpful is if, if that the core G4 is talking to the division G4 and the threes are talking to the threes, uh, that we, we try to coach that. When I say coach, we're very fortunate to have 28, you know, highly qualified expert senior mentors, retired general officers. And then uh, at MCTP, we get our 318 observer coach trainers, which are our scouts. But I think you'll find one consistent theme going forward on the commander's decision support template and his synchronization matrix. Um, you, you'll see this as a star, this, this, this very discussion that we're talking about right now. Displacement criteria, when, when, when are we going to collapse, move? Uh, the consolidation area, uh, and it's it, it's and it's the discussion as Bob, Bob sees it more so than I do. I'm fortunate to be with the high comm commander during warfighter exercises, so it's not as much pressure on him because he's not a training audience. But these are the discussions that are occurring, and uh, and there's some negotiations that occur between division and corps commander uh, on this said topic. I think there's a mindset thing too. So there's a cultural aspect of this that we were trying, and I think we had some success. I mean, just the fact that people are even accounting for the need to consolidate gains is a, represents progress, right? Army's a big institution and getting that switch in just a couple of years and the flexibility that MCTP's had with working scenarios and allocating an additional brigade, right? They have four brigades typically now or they used to only have three and that fourth one, in, the whole purpose for assigning a fourth brigade was to get after um, what happens between the, the, the close area and, and the unit rear boundary. Um, that doesn't mean people have to use it that way, but and, uh, obviously they don't in every case, but 
you know, it's a recognition that, hey, we have to get after this problem. But going back to the mindset, so if at the strategic level, consolidating gains is the ultimate purpose of military operations to begin with, okay, I've got some strategic political objective I need to do, and the whole purpose of the military operations is to set the security conditions for that outcome, all right? At the operational level, it's about ultimately denying the enemy time, space, and psychological breathing space or room uh, to organize for continued resistance, right? And then at the tactical level, consolidating gains is essentially the preventive uh, medicine that kills the seeds of insurgency. Um, and so those three viewpoints, and it's easy within the Army to do the, to have the tactical and operational perspective, but there's got to be recognition at the strategic level that's important. And that's not something we war game or, or, or conduct in exercises that I'm aware of. And that's my interest is, so we, I think we train the consolidation area and the warfighters at the tactical echelon, but the operational level, is there any construct that, that allows um, focus to, to discern organizational gaps, doctrinal gaps that exist from tactical to operational? Because we, we do have them as part of the template of the overall warfighter exercise, but they they're, they're just provide the wraparound considerations for our sustainers uh, to consider, but we don't really talk about the entire port to core to division area, we just assume it's secured and it's just, it's not a big part. But is there something that trains that that we know of? So I'm not, I'm not aware of anything that trains it all. I, I am aware that the Theater Army's, uh, Army Service Component Commands sure. to the Geographic Combatant Commanders, um, they look at that in terms of when they uh, do the operational preparation of the theater, the planning considerations that go into our operational plans uh, in, in many ways get after uh, what are the resources necessary to do that. Because ultimately at the operational level, it's a joint force commander right. problem set. Right. And the Army's got a huge Title X responsibilities under the law in, in, in terms of enabling and providing resources to the other services there. But since things, people live on land, uh, cities are on land. All of those things are on land. You know, a bulk of it falls into the Army, but it's the understanding and the Army communicating the requirements to do this right uh, to the Joint Force Commanders that's ultimately, I think, decisive. But that's a good question. I've got to go back and look and see if we've had how much influence we've had on the joint doctrinal side there. You know, in, in our exercise, uh, the warfighter kicks off. We're already in our tactical assembly areas. And we're crossing the line of departure. We're getting ready to do a forward pasture lines, gap crossing, attack the gap, and then continue the attack. And that's the nine-day, ten-day ten exercise, two days dedicated to AARs um, that uh, you know Bob was describing. I, I would say that I think uh, training, to your question, Bob, training, I, I can either confirm or deny, but I would say educating. Um, that, that we have, we are having these discussions. And, and Rich, Rich can vouch. We, we, we're fortunate to be able to sit in. Uh, on every ASEP-C class that comes here to Fort Leavenworth. And you hear things, strategic support area, fort to port, you're contested at, you know, as soon as you get into the theater, let alone into the fight. Um, so the discussions are occurring, whether, the, whether tabletop exercises. I, I would say that might be a, you know, a, something to consider is doing a, a, a warfighter exercise from the port to the TAA to start thinking through all domains and how we're going to be disrupted and still get to our TAAs. Uh, that we'll see what the future holds, but uh, I, I think that would be worth exploring. One, another one that goes from seizure of your objectives uh, right. and you're, you're, yeah, you're at the uh, 
the international boundary that you just reestablished, right. then what do you do? Because right. what, what you haven't done up to that point should be part of the scenario, and so that gives you a chance to go and address, you know, what needs to be uh, consolidated, but, you know, in plain English, cleaned up, right, to, to, to finish yeah. it out. Absolutely. That, the only thing about our exercise I will say, we, 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 uh, we do have our unified action partners that, that participate, and, and, you know, the POLAD is next to the division commanders during the exercises, so... There, we do inject those those pressures, the same pressures that we had in uh, counterinsurgency operations in, in large scale combat operations because they don't go away. You know, the embassy's calling down; they're getting guidance from you know from back home. We'll say, and uh, it, it becomes uh, they're, they're injects, but it, it really becomes a thinking man, thinking woman's uh, uh, decision space. So, those unified action partner piece is actually one part I think we got right in the doctrine, and I think we're going to ex expand upon that a little bit. So what Consolidate Gains looks like is going to, and who does it, and who ha who provides what military capability to achieve the desired end state uh, is going to vary wildly uh, from theater to theater, mm -hmm. right? So one of the questions we got is, why wasn't this in doctrine before? Well, our doctrine for, our, you know, other than the coin, uh, excursion for 20 years and, and stability, security, cooperation, all that uh, w was based in large part on airland battle and the doctrine from the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Well, where were we expecting to fight in the 1980s? We were expecting to fight in Europe or the Korean Peninsula. Who was responsible for consolidating gains for as we recaptured either German uh, real estate or, or, or Korean real estate or even move into North Korea as, as an example? You know, who would be responsible for consolidating those gains? Yeah. Our allies would do it, right? It's their, it's their territory. They have plans for that. They have security apparatus to do it. They have police uh, functioning militaries of their own, uh, and they have the natural cultural affinity to do that. They understand all those things. And we had organizations within the Army, both uh, the Rear Area Operations Center and those kinds of things that were designed nothing other than to coordinate with the host nation and allied forces uh, for those tasks. The problem gets to be we're operating somewhere else uh, where you don't have that and, and, and you're in an alien place and there are no allies or partners who are from that area uh, to do that. But the doctrine says it, that's our first choice uh, is to use allies and partners for that and that kind of falls in nicely with what capabilities they often bring to them and, and quite uh, possibly what rules of engagement uh, or uh, caveats they have for the employment of their forces. Um, so we, we stress that doctrinally, but again, that is a difficult thing to, to replicate unless you're doing a real on-the-ground theater exercise. Well, sir, earlier you mentioned, you know, we've, you've, we've got up to the international dateline or, or the, um, the, we've reestablished re the, uh, the, the international boundary that we, were, that we wanted to establish. In, in, in that regard, should we look at consolidating games as kind of a transition mechanism to move from the offense into stability? Yeah, so that's a great question because, you know, we, we say that consolidating games begins uh, when large-scale ground combat is largely concluded in an area. But when, when we say largely concluded, we don't mean completely concluded. Uh, and so, um, you know, for a, in terms of a transition, the transition is bigger the higher the echelon you go. So a brigade that's, that's conducting offensive tasks to clear uh, an urban area, a city of some sort, they may be consolidating gains on, the, uh, on behalf of a division or corps, all right, but 
that's they're not in their mission statement go consolidate gains they're being given tactical tasks to accomplish missions to secure this population center these people that that critical piece of terrain so they're conducting decisive action so at the lower tactical level um, as things mature it may become less violent and more stability operations focused but that's going to be a natural occurrence that it should be transparent to a brigade for example that it's doing that Whereas a division doing it for a core, the divisions that were ahead of part of the core that have already conducted operations through that had already should have set some benchmark of conditions for which that follow-on, that follow-and-support division that is consolidating gains, it's going to be a different mission profile and set for that division because they know that's what they're there to do. So we're going to conduct some attacks to finish off the diehards in this area or that. We're gonna conduct pursuit and exploitation to chase people that want to go hide in the mountains or are hiding in this urban area. Okay, we got that. But they already go into that understanding that they've got a big piece of stability operations that they need to do in cooperation with host nation forces. So they see it better. They see they can see that transition. They should, and that's yes, the sir. way they should be talking about it. And then you go up to the next higher echelons. I mean, you're talking about the Army's trying to bring in civil affairs Mm -hmm. um, NGOs, uh, the other elements uh, of the U.S. government, State Department, all these other folks coming in uh, with this apparatus. Um, and then, so, and then back to the transition piece again, um, there's historical examples where we transitioned in certain areas to military governance, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and military governance, I think, was a radioactive consideration uh, in the last 20 years or so, actually going back to the Balkans in many uh, but it's actually a legal responsibility that the Army owns per DOD instruction um, that military governance is, it may be a task that the Army uh, is asked to do. And that's not something we did uh, in these other areas. But in the Second World War, we had a plan for that. We trained people for that. And that's where the skill sets and the reserve components, the Army National Guard and the Army Reserve come into place because you've got people who actually do civil government things as part of their day job. Uh, and so that would be a resource to, to think about uh, that transition as well. But you gotta have a plan, right? And, and so the doctrine is really just tipping people towards, hey, you gotta plan for this, you gotta have a plan, and you gotta figure out how you're gonna resource it. So, so I, we, we kinda got, we, we talked about some of the higher echelon issues. If we could, I just want to recap at the at the low tactical level. What activities are we talking about with consolidated gains? Because, sir, you, you started to talk a lot about the uh, the civil the use of civil affairs and, and that security piece. Can you describe the the combination of security and stability tasks that we generally think of make up consolidated gains? Yeah, so I, I kind of think about it and as we were writing this, the team that was working on it. We are thinking about it in terms of there's a temporal aspect to it, right, the time. So over time, your mix of tasks should change. If you're successful uh, and you're defeating the opposition, uh, then things should be getting better, right? So I can, I'm no longer is, uh, wholly focused on the things that are going to kill me. Right? So decisive action says that we conduct offensive, defensive, and stability operations simultaneously, but we don't do it simultaneously in the same unit. All right? So I've got to finish defeating the people that could kill me first, all right? That's first and foremost. Now, we always have uh, the requirement uh, as American soldiers to comply with the law of armed conflict. So that means there's always a minimum level of stability-associated tasks to, to protect populations, as an example. 
So we always have to do that. So that goes without saying, but we say it explicitly. Uh, but over time, as you've defeated the enemy, you've accounted for that order of battle, right? Because it gets to, back to the preparation up front. I need to know all of the folks that I'm fighting so that I can make sure I've accounted for all of them and they have not melted away somewhere to become guerrillas the day after tomorrow. Um, but at that very lowest tactical echelon, again, uh, it should be completely unimportant to me whether I'm consolidating gains or not. I'm executing the task that the division has given me to do uh, to, to support the higher commander's uh, course of action or scheme of maneuver. Uh, over time, it will become more obvious as, as the situation matures, uh, whether I'm doing it or the unit that comes behind me and relieves me uh, and assumes responsibility for my area of operations. Either way, um, it will become more clear. Uh, and I think probably from a human psychology standpoint, uh, ultimately you would prefer to have someone transition in uh, to consolidate gains formally uh, so that I can make the separation between uh, attacking and defending and then stability tasks because that's a, sometimes a difficult psychological transition. Um, and, and, and again, there's a, many historical examples from the Second World War of, of that, but Korean War as well. The biggest challenge, I mean, at the tactical level is always the commander's intent, whether written, purpose, key tasks, and end state, and, and that for those that are in those tactical formations to understand the end state to which they're achieving. And if they achieve said end state, to not be confused, that means you're getting on the first plane going home. Because um, yeah. it gets back to, it's consolidating gains, it's sustaining momentum, it's maintaining the gains. Throw whatever word you want in front of it, but because uh, if you don't, it, it sets the conditions that Rich was just describing um, and, and we've seen in our army at, at other places. So I don't know about you guys, maybe you share your experiences, but I was always very frustrated uh, early on in Iraq with the narrative that came out that, you know, the U.S. Army forces on the ground didn't know what they were supposed to be doing, and, you know, you had the images of the museum getting looted in Baghdad and all this other stuff, right? Um, but this gets to anticipating those transitions at some point and making somebody responsible for stuff, because if you had American soldiers shooting looters coming out of the museum, um, that would have arguably been more problematic than, than watching them, right? Um, and, and the reason why I, I, I say that is, you know, a large part of the Army did stability tasks uh, through the uh, implied threat of force uh, in the Balkans for, at that point, what, five, seven, eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, and a large part of the Army had gone through that. So I think in many ways it was a false narrative in the sense that Army units knew, in most cases, the kinds of things that they were doing. They were actually doing them. There just weren't enough of them to do it on a national scale and everywhere. So in each of the pockets of areas of operations for battalions, people were consolidating gains as best they could with what they had. Um, but you, it, it's got to be a plan. It can't be an ad hoc thing. And, and when you're doing large-scale combat operations, large-scale means it's going to be over an extended area and it's going to extend, uh, extend in from the tactical up to the strategic, and there's got to be some sort of alignment there. You can do the best you, you possibly can at the tactical level, but you're not going to solve all those problems at the operational strategic if you had, haven't anticipated them. Does that make sense? I mean, that was my per experience. Perfect sense. And, you know, and whatever that area of operation looked like before large-scale combat operations, it no longer looks like that now. And to, and to have that plan uh, in place, you know, knowing that there is a transition, 
um, to security or to uh, support activities and uh, and to have a plan and, and, and be ready to execute because it may be upon you hopefully quicker than you, than you had anticipated. On that note, sir, is do you see the units, I guess, um, planning that, what we would typically call phase four? Because I, I feel like it, in the past it was often kind of just a hand wave. You know, a phase four, you know, we, we get there. And, and we've also we've focused back on LISCO, large-scale combat ops. Are we still, are we still, I guess, planning for phase four or, or not? Have we lost the bubble on that? What, do you all have any input on that? So, I, so just for a warfighter, um, one of the tasks is that the, uh, <clears throat> the division of the Corps, whoever's the senior training audience, has got to provide a, a feedback on a transition on for, for once the objective is established for forward passage lines of another force forward or in the Baltic scenario for security of the uh, of the international boundary. Now that's just a briefing. It's not actually in the nine days doesn't allow us to go into that piece. But in that your core planners, your division planners will integrate unified action partners and start considering the uh, and, and start trying to understand more than what they already stood, understand good in, going into it, the capability of allied forces, the availability of of uh, of uh, local police forces, um, the role that state and interagency is going to play in that consolidation piece. So it is a very small part uh, that we ensure is part of the warfighter construct. But again, it doesn't get as much attention as that tempo piece taking terrain and synchronizing other warfighting functions. And, and the only thing I'll add in Buff's 100% spot on, but it, it, it is a trend uh, that we've seen. We've seen it getting better, but it's the enforcement of the planning horizons at Echelon. And the, and the warfighter exercise, I mean, it, it centers around the ATO cycle, 72-hour ATO cycle. If you're not looking beyond 72 hours, you're not going to have the weaponized system uh, to kill the enemy in said large-scale combat operations. But what, what we see, where's the excitement in a warfighter exercise, right? It, it's, it's in the JAJIC. It's on the co-op floor. It's in the main. Uh, but those units that are disciplining themselves to having current ops, future ops, future plans, uh, because we're going to provide the forcing functions for future plans to be looking out at what Bob just described, um, and, and we'll recognize. But but that's that's the fundamental uh, challenge, if you will. Uh, but those units that you know get into a large scale combat operations battle rhythm in their CPX two at home station, and they do it in CPX three. T tend to enter at a higher level of training proficiency than those who don't because the world-class op four doesn't care i mean once that game comes on he's in your face and he is relentless yeah i think there's another piece of it too and it's related to what uh, both bob and shane said it's you know as a planning effort phase four the old joint phasing construct that you know it we're keeping it we're not keeping it but it's still out there in the vernacular for sure um but phase four planning is an economy of force effort for, for planners. Mm -hmm. And there's some logical reasons for that. The first and foremost, it's seldom something that you're going to exercise or rehearse. All right, so that's one thing that makes it difficult. Two, it's very difficult to predict the outcomes. You have to assume success. Uh, and then if you assume you know, excess, success for the previous phases of that joint operation, um, but then it becomes hard to anticipate where the failures are going to be, too. So how do you refine it, right? Because the only way you can refine plans is if you try them somehow, some way, shape, or form, find out something doesn't work, and then refine it. So the incentives, I think, in the past uh, for getting that right probably weren't as strong as they needed to be. I think one way we get after it, though, is the O-plan reviews in each of the geographic combatant commanders 
uh, of real-world operation plans, and we do it in, in this construct that, uh, that, that we're moving towards doctrinally, which is competition, crisis, and conflict. Um, so we have a competition continuum, and so the competition piece of that in this construct, I know it seems silly to use the same word twice, but it's, what it means is competition below the level of armed conflict. Uh, if you don't do this during competition, you're going to be in a real time crunch during crisis to get it right. And so a large part of the Army activities, this security cooperation, uh, the joint multinational planning, the OPLAN refinement, has got to be with allies and partners uh, who we're going to depend upon, at least in the mature theaters, to get that stuff uh, about right. Because in crisis, the, the time horizons narrow down so fast, and the focus is really on getting people and stuff into the place, and it's not going to be refining later parts of the plan. It's going to be the focus on the, the front part of the plan or the joint phasing construct. Uh, and then during conflict, you know, large-scale ground combat operations, we don't, we're, we're past the days where we think that, that you know, those are going to be over in a week uh, or even 30 days. And so after the conflict starts, things will start to happen that we should be able to anticipate where we need to start accelerating uh, our approach to how we consolidate gains in terms of either resources or even just the course of action that we assume. You know, after first contact, the whole plan is going to become a series of what, uh, fragos and uh, branch plans and sequels and so forth. Uh, but ultimately, at some point, a branch plan and sequels got to include consolidating gains. So, uh, Colonel Morgan, I know you mentioned, you know, the discipline planning horizons, the use of the, the SACP. Are there any other lessons learned or best practices that you've seen units do that we haven't discussed yet today when it comes to consolidating gains? It's the pre-warfighter uh, emphasis on rehearsals. So they do a sustained rehearsal. They always do a sustained rehearsal. Uh, and it's normally pretty thorough from the divisions I've been fortunate to work with. Um, but they really don't go into the detail of what happens with an uncooperative um, enemy in the consolidation area. It typically tends to be more set-piece than sustainment rehearsal. It doesn't go into the security considerations, and it really doesn't go into the consolidation areas. What if something happens? What if a level three threat pops up? What if the enemy air assaults something in? What if, you know, what if bypass forces get through? So it's, it's the rehearsals leading up to it uh, and beyond just the flow of all classes and commodities forward into the rear, but that, that, again, it goes back to who is responsible, typically the DCGS, for everything going on here and what resources do they have. A, a, a TTP that we recommend, even though time is real tight going into a warfighter, is just do a consolidation area rehearsal, purely tactical, mm -hmm. contingencies. You know, what's the worst case scenario that the Division G2 could red team into the consolidation area? And have we really integrated the CAB and the FAB and all the core stuff that the DCGS is supposed to have visibility on with the MEB and the Sustainment Brigade CPs co-located? So that rehearsal pre-warfighter, I think, would address a lot of the vertical learning we see day five and six. So, you know, the other thing, and we, we kind of joke about this, but we, we've all been on the, the dirt CTC rotations, right? So you go to NTC rotation and a brigade combat team uh, or Hohenfels or, or Fort Polk, but uh, if you were to stand on a, on a prominent piece of terrain behind the edge of the close area, you would see the command post for the battalions and you'd see uh, a lot of activity, mm -hmm. right? You could watch the dust from the vehicles as they're moving around. But if you were to turn around and look behind you, 
if, if the support areas, say the, the brigade support areas is, is 10 or 15 clicks back, you know, doctrinally, um, the only thing you're probably likely to see is maybe a few antennas here or there for retrans uh, for communications. And then some, you know, if it's log pack time, you'll see vehicles moving back and forth. But in the real world where the BCT is not by itself, but it's part of the entire division, if you were to stand on that same piece of terrain and look back, it would look just like the simulations in MCTP warfighters where the computer screen is filled with icons, mm -hmm. right? And so you would look back and see uh, every piece of ground that, that was worth anything that could be used, somebody would be using it for something. It's crowded and busy. And that's what's hard, I think, is there's a disconnect between what happens in training in the dirt and then training uh, on the screen. And, and just because you see icons, it's not the same as feeling it, smelling it, having to navigate it in the dirt. And so on, since the warfighters or the actual ground phases of OIF and, and Desert Storm, I'm not sure we physically had a chance to practice that, right? Because it's, it's just hard to visualize, I think. Uh, unless you've seen it before. And frankly, not that many people that are still serving have seen it before. I know the intention, uh, so they've got the, the uh, Forcecom has got the National Training Center 2010 next month, which is the first division live blended constructive. Uh, and even though a lot of things have occurred that have, uh, it, it's going to be a great rotation, obviously, but the wraparound constructive for the appreciation of the consolidation area should be a part of that as we as I believe Forcecom is going to try and put a division rotation into NTC or JRTC's live to bring in the constructive and what MCTP brings in so that we can go beyond just the mostly lethal, a little bit of non-lethal brigade level and below into everything behind them that will allow a division staff out in the dirt to be looking, paying as much attention to the rear as they are forward. Right. And that's something that General Rainey uh, makes sure that we understand very clearly is that what's going on, that DCGS and, and, the, and the support area command post, and maybe hopefully someday the division area command post, what they command and control and the way in which they conduct operations should keep that division commander and the brigade commanders from having to look from behind. They can, they can stay focused to the front. I mean, it's, ultimately, consolidating gains and ensuring that support area operations are occurring smoothly is all about enabling freedom of action and focus uh, for the folks in the close and deep fight. I mean, that's really ultimately what we're, we're getting after, over and beyond, you know, just those large, larger operational and strategic considerations. On that note, I kind of want to look at the future uh, in closing here. And what do you see as future changes to consolidating gains? I know we've talked today about the bringing back the rear area, um, and we've, we've done some, so you've mentioned military governance having maybe a more prominent place. Uh, would you care to elaborate on any of that or any other changes in the future of, of consolidating gains and how we approach it? So I, you know, we're going to keep the Army strategic roles, um, but we're not going to belabor them in the FM 3.0 level tactical doctrine. You know, that, that's going to be a setup at the ADP level, ADP 1, ADP 3. Uh, and we're going to focus down on competition, crisis, conflict. We're going to work on the operational framework. Uh, we're going to go deep, close, rear support areas. Um, because that's really more than 51% of the time the way people think about it anyways. Um, and, and quite frankly, uh, the senior leadership supported us moving that direction. So that's going to provide some clarity and simplicity. 
we're going to talk about consolidating gains during competition, crisis, and conflict. Um, and in many ways, that accounts for um, the information dimension of the operational environment, okay? Um, we are consolidating gains in competition right now. We have forces forward stationed in Europe and Asia uh, in, in the CENTCOM AOR uh, for the very purpose of consolidating gains that were made. They could have been made 75 years ago. They could have been made two years ago, depending on which theater you're talking about. But, you know, part of consolidating gains is, is, is protecting your alliances, um, maintaining those relationships with allies, uh, creating interoperability or greater levels of interoperability. That's all about consolidating a status quo favorable to the United States of America. In, in crisis, we'll talk... Uh, about protecting those relationships again, uh, but they'll be more focused on a specific adversary in case of, instead of that broad approach that happens outside of the threat of conflict. Um, we'll also talk uh, in more detail, I think, about the importance of planning, like we discussed earlier, and anticipating what the requirements are in the places you're most likely to fight. Uh, and then in conflict, we will talk about it much as we do in the current version. Um, but we will work it out uh, in terms of, are we operating in a theater that's contiguous? You know, the operations are largely contiguous like Europe or CENTCOM. Uh, or is it a theater like the Indo-PACOM where uh, you're talking about non-contiguous forces in these vast geographical distances, and so they've got different problem sets. So I think that's where we're going to go with this. And I'll, I'll just share it at, uh, at MCTP. You know, we started the conversation with, uh, uh, you know, the tactical level. Everybody's familiar with consolidation and reorganization. Well, even internally, you know, how are we going to be better postured to enable the training of divisions and corps in, uh, in large-scale combat? We're we reorganizing right now ourselves and, and realigning our people more vertically where we're going to be focused on the synchronization and integration of warfighting functions and less so brigade headquarters. So... Uh, we're, we're posturing ourselves and a key task uh, from our CG for this next warfighter exercise is to do a deep dive into information. Um, not, not necessarily as a warfighting function, but give it the same level of priority um, as we start, you know, we're postured for multi-domain operations. I mean, we organize a strategic effects group uh, of leaders and of senior mentors with those, some of those very specialized skills in the space or the cyberspace realm, you name it. But uh, we're, we're, we're adapting, we're posturing right now to meet exactly what we think today the, the future looks like. And, and for us, the future is on us next month, uh, you know, out to, I think we should be set you know, for the next couple of years, at least in this construct, uh, and adapt as required. Uh, as far as going forward, uh, I obviously agree with what Colonel Creed and Colonel Morgan, but just kind of thinking about it going in the future, I think, I think the... Uh, you know, and this is a big assumption, but the core commanders, division commanders, the DCGs that support them and their staffs, um, they would agree they understand the, the importance of the consolidation area and consolidating gains uh, and the appreciation for rare areas and, the, and that construct. Uh, I think if they, if, if they were in this room, again, uh, this is just an assumption, a lot of them would say, I don't disagree. It would be great, you know, what we always ask for, to have um, additional staff to assist with that or that MEB availability to train with it uh, to really do that once every two years for the active component or once every four to five years for the National Guard divisions uh, to train 
with that lined up MEB, even though it's not the only element in the consolidation area, but it's a big part of where the, the conversation starts. And it assists the division staff from having to give up folks, and that's why I meant more people, to go back there and compensate for the MEB that just doesn't bring as many of that one training opportunity every two years or every four years. So it's, a, it's an organizational issue. It's also a material issue too. I, mean, I, I, was, uh, I read some of the, the, uh, the draft for rear operations and I thought it was great. I mean, I really, some of the things we're kind of bringing back in the construct I thought was really interesting. But on the material standpoint for a DOTMO PF proponency, the, the command post ability to put tents back there to create that command post with the C4I for the flow of information and then bringing the MEB into it, I think would allow, if they were in this room, that those core division commanders would say that would, I, I understand the importance, I'm all over the importance, um, but if I just had additional capacity for either personnel or training or material, it would allow me to really get after what doctrine is telling me I, I appreciate. Yeah, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, because I, I can't believe I didn't mention it, but the, so TRADOC, informed by AFC in, in, in cooperation with AFC, but TRADOC's got the lead here at Combined Arms Center, uh, and General Rainey uh, with, and General Funk going after how the Army fights and how that informs modernization. So we're doing a series uh, of things that and Consolidate Gains becomes part of it with the focus on how do we address the issue that all the MEBs are in Compos 2 and 3 in the Army Reserve and National Guard. Um, and so do we need a protection formation that's responsible for um, the, in the active component, that's responsible for uh, securing uh, the uh, support area and c conducting maneuver support uh, for other operations. And then um, if we do that and we, we solve that part, the support area piece, then the rest of the rear area uh, challenge becomes more clear. Um, and, and so, these organizational and material fieldings, you know, they're imminent. Those things are going to happen. We just don't know exactly what they're going to look like yet, but they will happen within the next four or five years. Very well. Well, gentlemen, do you have anything else that we should address today? Or? No, I think these are uh, from MCTP. These are awesome. Thanks for doing them. I mean, we're always looking for ways to get our, our observations out there and, and the things that we're reading, and, and we do want to be the, uh, you know, the conduit or the, the repository for the joint and really army forces to reach in because we have time our mission you know we're warfighters so you know we're combing through everything that comes out of cad comes out of the center for army lessons learned and uh we're hanging products and processes and sops on our on our site so by all means uh, we exist to support the operating force and and hopefully some of you out there are listening <laughs> well we're going to make sure we bring you in uh, to some more of these going forward and we appreciate the cooperation uh, and the teamwork yeah. Well, Jim, and on that note, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. Cool. Warfighters. I'd also like to thank our listeners and note that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Major Chris Parker, and this is Breaking Doctrine.